Well, let me add my welcome to Andrews if you are uh, visiting or new especially. Uh, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. We're working through this um, section of Reformation slogans as we think about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, last week, Scripture alone. Today, Christ alone. Next week, we'll be looking at grace alone. And as you've seen over each of those three weeks, we're going to be uh, hearing about one of the famous reformers. So last week, Martin Luther. Today, John Calvin. Tim helpfully shared with us. Next week, Zwingli. So that's where we're heading over these three weeks. Um, So let me pray for us now as we come uh, to this part of God's word and think about this theme of Christ alone. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we see it in all that is around us in your creation, that you've revealed yourself through these things, but ultimately in the person of your Son. We thank you for your word to us. Help us not to take it for granted, but rather to hear your voice as we read it and think about it together. I pray that you'd help me to speak faithfully, that we might uh, continue to be challenged as we think together about what you have done in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. You may remember back in 2008, uh, we had the Catholic World Youth Day, which was held in Sydney. An estimated 125,000 pilgrims from overseas came uh, to Sydney to be part of that. And it's estimated that between 300 and 400,000 people attended the final mass at Randwick Racecourse. Impressive numbers, but uh, what was highlighted more particularly is a big theological issue. Um, It largely focused this gathering on a person, Pope Benedict XVI, the head of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Uh, The papal arrival by plane and then a motorcade on Sydney Harbour followed by a motorcade through the CBD just highlighted the central importance of the Pope and his cardinals and bishops and their role as acting as priestly mediators for Catholic believers. And I guess this is most clearly seen in the Mass, which happened at the end of uh, the celebrations at Randwick, where they presided over a ceremony. And of course, Benedict is the central figure in events because the Pope is viewed by Catholics as God's representative on earth. He is in the line of apostolic um, succession, it's argued, which started with the Apostle Peter. And so the Pope is the head of a group of mediators, cardinals, bishops, priests, who are said to be the intermediaries between sinful people and a holy God. And that's because according to Catholic tradition, uh, Jesus founded the papacy in the first century when he chose Peter to be his earthly representative. And over the centuries, as the church has developed its claims, it's increasingly and firmly expressed Uh, their view of the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church, and many argue that culminated in 1870 with the proclamation of the dogma of papal infallibility. If you don't know what that phrase means, it is the belief that the Pope can never be wrong, uh, at least only when he speaks at a certain point. So that only is effective when he speaks ex cathedra, or literally from the chair, which is said to be St. Peter's, chair where he issues a formal definition of faith or morals. Now, of course, Protestants contend uh, that the New Testament offers no such proof that Jesus started the papacy, nor even that he assigned Peter as the first bishop of Rome. 
Rather, using Peter's own words, uh, Christ himself is the chief shepherd and Peter is just one of many under-shepherds or elders who serve God's people. I guess this tension and this whole big question raises um, a thing that we need to think through clearly together. And that is, do we need a human mediator to stand between ourselves and God? I mean, there were priests in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant for the nation of Israel. Can we have priests today that help us connect to God? And so the big question I want us to consider this morning is this. Why is Christ the only mediator between God and man? Why is Christ alone the one mediator between God and humanity? Well, in answering that question, my first answer is this. Because Christ replaces human mediators. Firstly, because Christ replaces human mediators. So have a look again at Hebrews 9, just verses 6 to 10. The writer says this. When everything had been arranged that is in the temple like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. Verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Well, what do we see here? Notice in verses 6 and 7, we've got this short description of the priestly ministry under the old covenant. Here are people who were set aside as priests, a set special task to represent the people of God to God. They're offering sacrifices on their behalf in payment for sin. So you notice here that as a result, people stand at a distance from God. They can't get close to God, but rather they have this go-between or priest who does that work for them. But notice that even the priests stand at a distance. So... The priest can't actually go into the Holy of Holies or the inner room in the tabernacle or temple that represented God's presence. Only one person, the high priest, got to go into that room to actually enter God's presence. And then that person even only once a year. And so we see that God has deliberately created this system to show that people could not be in his holy presence. And the reason for that, which becomes clear as we read Hebrews 8, 9 and 10, is because of our sin. Uh, we are sinful human beings. We can't be in the presence of a holy, perfect God who cannot look upon sin. Moreover, in verse 9, what we realize here is that the sacrificial system, which God himself had laid down, was deliberately unsatisfactory. It was designed to point forward to something bigger, something greater that was coming, a new system. And we can see that the old system didn't work because we're told here that the conscience of the worshiper was not cleared by this system of human mediators or priests and their sacrifices. It didn't work. People still felt guilty. They had no sense that they were forgiven by God. And so in verse 10, we're told what they were doing was simply external regulations. Yes, laid down by God, but under the old covenant, they were just something that anticipated a new order that was coming in Jesus, a new order that would finally work. 
that would cleanse the conscience of sinful people. I don't know if you realize, but there are over 300,000 people around the world in jail that are prisoners of conscience today, where they have expressed things contrary to the ruling regime in their country and as a result have been jailed for their beliefs. Largely political prisoners who have expressed their views, uh, but there's some 35 countries that do this, detain people for their beliefs, for practicing their religion, even just for expressing pride in their ancestry. Because in some countries, these things are called considered subversive acts that are against the government. And people are often held in appalling conditions, jailed for simply holding to these beliefs that they have. I want to put it to you this morning, though, um, that that 300,000 is a drop in the bucket. In fact, I'd argue that there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who are prisoners of conscience. But they're in a prison that has no bars. They're in a prison of their own because they don't have release. There's no forgiveness. There's no clearing of their conscience. These people are depending on human mediators or priests who are actually no real help for them before God. Just as the Israelites struggled under the old covenant. No forgiveness is understood. But notice the writer to the Hebrew tells us that a new way of relating to God had come, a new system of mediation that would work. Have a look again at verses 14 and 15. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, clear our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. It's a beautiful summary here. Um, in these verses, Christ is two things. He's both the mediator or priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Instead of coming and offering a goat or a sheep, he offers himself. He lays down his own life. It's his blood that is shed And we're told it's done once for all. And the result is that his death and resurrection, which are described here as a ransom that set us free from sin, has actually ushered in a new covenant. A new agreement has been struck by God with people. His sacrifice does cleanse our consciences. A way has now been opened to God by this superior high priest. Now, as we look at these change from the old to the new covenant, you need to see two things. There's continuity. There's also discontinuity here. The continuity is this. Verse 22 tells us in Hebrews 9 that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And this is true under the new covenant. Jesus had to die. He came and shed his blood so that forgiveness could be truly offered. There's a continuity between old and new. But there's a great discontinuity here. And that is that Jesus is a replacement for all these human mediators who are now obsolete because Christ appears for us before God the Father. He doesn't go into a shadow that is the tabernacle of the temple. We're told, verse 24, he enters the very presence of God the Father himself, sits down at his right hand, intercedes for us because his blood has been shed to pay for our sin once for all. 
And so Christ doesn't need to be sacrificed again and again in verses 26 to 28. But you know, that's what the Roman Catholic Mass does. It sacrifices Jesus again and again. There's no need for the bread and the wine to be turned into the body and blood of Jesus that the sacrifice of the cross may be recreated because our sin was dealt with in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. It's been done. Now, he's going to come back in verse 28, but not to the communion table. Rather, he will bring salvation, notice. At his second coming, he will collect all those who have trusted in him as their one true mediator. Well, how do we apply all of these big truths to ourselves today? Well, let me say two things. Firstly, uh, we've got to grasp that as we think about the Catholic Mass, that it's part of a whole sacramental system. Now, it's one of seven sacraments that they list, whereby God's grace is said to be mediated or delivered to the individual through signs and rituals conducted by priests only, special people that can do that for you. So rather than God's grace coming to you through Christ alone, it's mediated to you through a go-between who must present you, the average Christian, before God. You see what such a system does? It's to go back to the old covenant system. It's to go back to a priestly form of mediation where there's no direct access to God, where you're dependent on a third party. This is a very strong argument through Hebrews 8 and 10 that this is not what we're to do. Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12 says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In 1520, uh, Martin Luther published one of his many tracts that he released during that period, and this one was called The Babylonian Captivity. And in it, he dealt with the sacraments and priests as mediators of them. Now, remember, Luther grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, he was a monk. He was a priest. He was a theologian, a lecturer for their colleges at the university. What did he have to say about the sacraments and the priests? Well, one of the five sacraments he rejected as not being biblical was ordination. Ordination, as it was practiced then and still is by the Catholic Church, believes that an ordained priest is transformed at the moment of ordination and put onto a higher moral plane so that they can perform this special role of administering the sacraments, which are exclusively limited to these priests. They're put in a special category by a service of ordination. Luther had this to say about it. Counterfeit spiritualities serve God without Christ the mediator. Counterfeit spiritualities serve God without Christ, the mediator. See, what Hebrews 9 and 10 make clear to us is that Jesus replaces such systems because Christ alone, through his death and resurrection, has broken a peace deal with God. More than that even, he now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for those who place their faith in him. Now, as we apply this point further and think about this wonderful gift of 
direct access to God, we need to think about our prayer lives. See, it's a wonderful gift that's been given to us, direct access to the Father, the temple curtain torn in two at the moment Jesus dies because he is the one mediator. Notice how the writer of the Hebrews understood this in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. I think we hear these words all the more sharply if we read Hebrews 9 and 10 first. Therefore, says the writer, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, notice no other priest does this, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us then approach the throne of grace, that is, come to God in prayer, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the writer here is saying we've got this representative, God the Son, at the right hand of God the Father, and we're to come before this throne of grace, that is, to be able to enter freely into God's presence, to be in his throne room, as it were, and we do that through prayer. Direct access to God through prayer. Now, this throne of grace, it's worth thinking about this phrase for a moment. I mean, the throne is obviously a, a symbol of power. You know, if somebody exalted rule, it's the king or the queen on their throne ruling. And so the throne speaks of God's rule, refers to the completion of Christ's task as well, that he has sat down at the right hand of God the Father and rules with him. But notice that it's a throne of grace. Such an important word refers to God's willing reception of our prayers, his kindness, his generosity to us, that he would receive us. And this is why we had approached the Father through our great high priest Jesus with confidence. And that means when you're praying, you don't need to pray nervously. You don't need to be worried whether God will give you a good reception. You know, so often in centuries past, it was this fearful distance from God that people assumed even after Christ had come. And so they would pray nervously, unsure if God would want to hear them. But when we pray to God with uncertainty and a sort of crouching fear, we've actually, we need to be rebuked. That's not an understanding of the New Testament. We're dishonoring Jesus at that point as he has won us free access to the Father in prayer to pray whatever is on our heart. We can't get any more direct access to God the Father than through God the Son. You cannot beat that. And so you don't need to pray through anybody else. There's no more direct access. There's no value in praying to Mary or some past saint. I mean, saint is just a word for a believer, a Christian. You're all saints. There's no need for an intermediary because you've got Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's not only useless to pray through a human being, it's actually idolatrous when we understand this part of Scripture. Because we're basically denying that Jesus is our representative. That somehow we need someone else or some other route to God. When he has come and laid down his life and is at the right hand of the Father. What is becoming of a Christian, notice here, is confidence in prayer. We come into God's presence confidently. 
You say, how can we do so? God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in charge of the whole universe. And we can bowl into his presence in confidence? Yes, that is what Christ has won for you. Maybe you saw the movie in 2010, The King's Speech. Uh, Colin Firth plays the future king, George VI, who's coping with a stammer. He sees Lionel Logue, an Australian speech and language therapist who's played by Geoffrey Rush. Uh, the two men become friends through this process as they work together. And after his brother abdicates the throne, the new king relies on Logue to help him to make his, four, his first wartime broadcast as uh, Britain declares war in 1939. But there's this great scene as they're running up to the coronation of King George VI. They're in Westminster Abbey practicing some of the things George is going to have to say so that he won't stammer. And they're talking away, just standing around. And then suddenly he's been caught up in his practice and he turns around and he sees Logue sitting in the coronation throne. King George loses it. What are you doing? Get up. You can't sit there. Get up. Logue replies unconcerned. Why not? It's just a chair. George is fuming by this point. No, it's not. That is not just a chair. That is St. Edward's chair. Logue replies, well, people have carved their names into it. (laughs) That chair, says King George VI, is the seat on which every king and queen of Britain has been coronated. But you see, Logue's sort of way of just having this confidence in the king's presence and of even sitting in his throne is the kind of confidence we're encouraged to have as we come before the Father in prayer in Hebrews 4. It's not that you're to be irreverent before God in the way that Logue was at times, but simply that you have that confidence to be in God's presence. You've been directed to be so because of Jesus. You have liberty to speak your mind freely, to speak all your heart, your weaknesses, your wants, your fears, your grievances. You know, it was said of Martin Luther, the great reformer, that when he prayed, it was with as much reverence as if he were praying to an infinite God, for he was, but also with as much familiarity as if he were speaking to his nearest friend. Well, that is the gift of prayer. Prayer to the God who is truly sovereign over all that we see. Well, there's the first answer. Why is Jesus the one mediator between humanity and God? Because he replaces all human mediators. They're no longer needed. Second answer is this. Because Christ alone fully saves. Because Christ alone fully saves. He's not only a replacement, he needs no help. Turn with me again to Colossians 1, verses 20 to 23. Notice again what is written from verse 20. Through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Notice here, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. 
See, not only is Jesus supreme over all creation in verses 15 to 19 here in Colossians 1, but he's also supreme in salvation, verses 20 to 23, that we've just read. It's his finished work that fully saves and brings us into a right relationship with God the Father. Now, it's very clear here that we're reconciled to God through the Son and his work on the cross. We move from being alienated enemies of God to holy children by faith in Jesus alone. It's through the shedding of his blood that we can be forgiven and made right. In verse 22, those who are in Christ are, did you notice, without blemish, free from accusation. I put it to you, the only way that you can blemish something that is unblemished in this case, the only way that a guilty conscience can replace the full assurance that you should have is if you replace the knowledge of being free from accusation by putting trust in somebody other than Jesus. If you add to him when he has accomplished all that is necessary already. You know, the clear application of Colossians 1 is that Christ alone saves. No one can add to it. And that was the point in Hebrews 9 also. And Paul hammers it home here. Now, the only one who is fully God and fully man, who's, he has done everything. So therefore, there is not simply no need for a mediator but they can offer nothing. They have nothing to bring to the equation. And Christ is the final step. There are no middlemen needed. Christ has superseded all human priests. He's superseded the sacrificial system. He's made all these things obsolete because his payment is full. The work is complete. And Paul summarizes it this way elsewhere in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. See, only the one who has laid down his life for you can mediate between you, a hopeless sinner, and a holy God. If we look to human intermediaries, then we have to realize they're in no better position to us. They're just sinners. They can't assist in that sense. They have nothing to offer. I don't need to confess my sin to a priest to receive absolution. I can just go to God the Father through Jesus. I don't need the priest to reenact the crucifixion in the communion to keep presenting an acceptable sacrifice again and again for me. My mediator, Jesus, has done this once and for all and says it's not to be repeated. Now, look, as we apply this second point to our Christian walk today, if we have understood these truths deeply, then it brings a wonderful outcome in our thinking. And that is this. It will mean that we have full assurance of salvation, that we know where we stand with God. Full assurance. In the passage in Colossians 1, Paul states in verse 23, notice, that the Colossians remain reconciled, fully right, holy in God's sight, if they continue in their faith, established and firm, and not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So we're only going to lack assurance if we move away from the good news. If you move away from faith alone in Christ alone, 
then yes, you're suddenly on rocky ground and you'll have doubts. You won't be sure if you're right with God. You won't be certain of the future that you're going to heaven. Once you add supplementary mediators, depending on middlemen, well, then you introduce doubt into the equation. And this doubt has dominated the Roman Catholic theology for centuries because they've wanted to say over and over to be sure of your salvation is actually to be guilty of the sin of presumption. They want to say that no one can be sure, that there is no assurance. Now, this sin of presumption was precisely one of the charges made against the famous French heroine, Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was put on trial in 1431, and there the judges proclaimed this about her. This woman sins when she says she's certain of being received into paradise, as if she were already a partaker of the glory, seeing that on this earthly journey, no pilgrim knows if he or she is worthy of glory or of punishment, which only the sovereign judge alone can tell. See, the greatest gift of salvation through Christ's alone assurance is something that's denied and said to be a sin. And rather than a sin, assurance of salvation is the Christian privilege secured for you by Jesus. The reformers rightly argued that without such assurance, you can't actually live the Christian life. You cannot. Why is that? Well, because the Bible tells us over and over to be thankful, to be cheerful, to rejoice in all that's happening, to stand strongly in your faith, knowing of the certainty of your inheritance to come, that you are set for eternity. Well, how can you affirm any of those things if you have doubts about what will happen on the judgment day? when you're not sure of the future. You can't live as God calls you to live. We can't have those qualities unless we're sure that Christ is ours for good and that we really have been fully delivered from darkness. So the New Testament wants to say to us over and over again, there are no degrees of salvation. You're either saved or you're not. You're either trusting in Jesus alone or you're not. There's only two positions. And so... The wonder of this gospel is that the verdict of the future of Judgment Day is brought into the present. You say, how do you know that you'll be forgiven and you're right with God on the final day? Because God tells me that now. That judgment is already brought into the present. It's a once-for-all declaration at the point of a person's forgiveness. That's why Scripture will say things like Romans 8.30. Those he called, that is those God called, he also justified And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorified in the present tense? How can you already be glorified now? Because it's so certain. You are so certain your seat is already reserved in heaven. Justified, also glorified. And this is why Jesus could say to one of the dying criminals on the cross beside him as he confessed faith in Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. How can Jesus say that to him? Because all that's required is faith in Christ alone. The man doesn't need to live a good life. He doesn't have to get back down off the cross and do some good works for the next 20 years to make up the lack. It's all in Jesus. Well, we started with the question, why is Christ alone the one mediator between God and man? Well, we've seen the answer is twofold. One, Jesus replaces all human mediators. 
all prior or current systems are obsolete. They're of no use. And secondly, the reason they're no, of no use is because Jesus alone fully saves. Nothing can be added to it. No one can assist you in your salvation. Jesus has done it. Job complete 2,000 years ago. And the result of that should be that you have great confidence if you've placed your faith in Christ. You can pray with confidence. You have full assurance of the future. And that brings certainty in the present. Well, let me put it to you. If you say you're a believer this morning, but you don't have that full assurance that you feel you have doubts still about where you stand with God, then I want to draw you back to the gospel again. And I'd encourage you to talk to somebody about that. That's not a good position to be in, to have this sort of doubt hanging over your head. It's a terrible position to be in. It will stunt your growth as a believer. It will make it difficult for you to pray with confidence to your heavenly Father who calls you to do so. Be sure of where you stand because of Jesus. But what if you have good reason to doubt because you've never trusted in Jesus? You don't call yourself a Christian. Well, let me encourage you today to consider again Christ's work for you on the cross, that God out of his love sent him for you, that you might be forgiven, that you might be certain of what is beyond this life, that an eternity awaits with your Savior if you place your trust in him. And there is no fear of God's judgment once we know Christ. Please, again, talk to somebody if you're not sure about taking that step of trusting in Jesus. Christ, the one mediator, Christ alone. The reformers stood on that. We continue to stand on that truth 500 years later. Make sure you know it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son our great high priest, the one mediator between us sinful humans and you, a holy God. We thank you that in your love you desire right relationship with us, something that we cannot conjure up ourselves. We thank you that you've provided the solution. Help us to trust in that solution, that it is in Jesus alone that we can have full assurance. Help us to have that assurance, we pray, by continuing to hold firmly to that good news, that gospel of his death and resurrection for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.